Good morning, everyone. You're listening to a live broadcast of the Intelligent Investing Podcast, and this will be uh, uploaded onto the actual podcast. So if you're listening on YouTube live, hi, good morning, welcome. And if you are listening to this on the podcast at a later recording, I appreciate you listening. I wanted to share about a project that I've been working on. It's very near and dear to my heart. Um, It's something that I've been working on now for um, at least the last nine or 10 years, um, at least nine years. Um, it's a new model for shareholder activism. I launched a website, proxyactivism.com, that you can go to after if you would like to learn more information. And of course, you can contact me as well. Um, to be clear, I'm not um, selling anyone anything. Um, this is not pitching any specific stock recommendation or idea. Um, This is a model that I developed, and I'm looking forward to sharing this with you all. So as I said, this is a project that's taken me close to a decade now um, to develop. Uh, The project is called Proxy Activism, and um, it is the birth of thousands and thousands of hours um, that it took to develop this project to finally launch this. Um, I'm, this podcast is going to go into a background of how proxy activism came to be, um, our process, um, and how I see this project unfolding over time, and, and how you as a value investor can also be involved. And you know, for all you cynical people out there, I'm, I'm not trying to sell you anything. It's it's to share and spread awareness because I can't do this without um, other large shareholders of companies being involved. So I will get into that later. So my my initial insight um, was simple. You know, my idea for this project started when I did an ontological leadership program with a former vice president of Disney Corporation, uh, who had decided to quit his job and devote the rest of his life to empowering people and and lead this program. And I got more in a few days of intense Socratic style inquiry than in all the years of reading books combined. And as someone who's relied on books to get ahead of life, um, this was a completely new paradigm for me. And within the next few months, my income tripled. I repaired relationships with many of the people around me, including my family, friends, people I literally hadn't talked to in years. And I produced more results over the next few months than I had in my entire life. It was unreal. And I, I figured, you know, having that background in value investing, I was 20 years old when I had this experience, I figured there had to be some kind of application to business as well. And about a year after that, so now this is about 2009, I had the idea, huh, I wonder, I wonder if, if you were buying, say, stocks below intrinsic value and then could apply this kind of ontological work to organizations if it would improve shareholder value. So it turned out my intuition was correct. Um, the company had a consulting arm. I'm not going to mention their name on here. Um, and the consulting arm of that organization uh, actually was just recently named one of the top consulting companies uh, in the world by Forbes. So that's kind of a big deal and well-deserved. Uh, at a lecture that I had attended in NYU, um, they actually wanted some preliminary internal data that the company doesn't uh, actually publicize. I think they publicized it. People wouldn't believe it, to be honest, if you hadn't experienced that work. And the preliminary data that was presented at NYU um, showed that their average client 
over many years experienced a 600% increase in profits within the first 12 months. And, you know, I thought to myself, I wonder if I could combine, you know, this with shareholder activism. So, you know, I figured this must have already been done before and, you know, I figured I would go work for a hedge fund already, you know, someone already doing this and get some experience under my belt. There must have been some kind of fund going into businesses, doing ontological transformational work with businesses and producing massive exponential results as opposed to your typical, you know, change management linear results. And I was, it was, it was mind blowing, baffling to me, actually, um, you know, searching and searching, I could not find a single organization, a single hedge fund that was doing activism this way. And even the funds that had talked about so-called quote unquote transformations of companies were really just doing more of the change management consulting, you know, McKinsey style, Harvard business school model. Um, consulting models, and not anything actually transformational. And I, I kind of hate the word transformation. It's become sort of this bullshit buzzword that gets tossed around now. Um, but nothing wrong with that. It, it's just not as reliable or as effective when I say that change management, change, cost-cutting, all that, You know, focusing on operational efficiencies. It's all well and good. There's a lot of people who are good at that. It's just not as an effective as an effective game when you're only focusing on that. So I'll go into that in a little bit. But I, I was very frustrated at, you know, that I couldn't find one organization playing, um, you know, this game called Transform Companies. And I, I knew I was missing something. You know, how could it be that this kind of um, methodology produces mass, massive results in a significantly more um, reliable um, manner and quicker amount of time typically than your traditional activist, right? There's there's billions of dollars being left on the table by guys like, you know, Carl Icahn and 3G. Why aren't they doing it? Why why is um, Bill Ackman not doing this? These are smart people. These are not dumb people. Why aren't they doing this? Um, it kept me up at night. There was there, there was a night that I was not sleeping where I, I couldn't understand what was going on. So, you know, every single business study uh, on this kind of work showed that results uh, that any shareholder activist would literally be sal you know, salivating over. You know, this to me was very clear alpha, a low competition game with very high barriers for entry. Actually, if the barriers to entry were low, I wouldn't be, you know, doing a video or a podcast about this right now. I would literally not be talking about it. So why is nobody already doing this? And, you know, so as I said, I, I, I knew I was missing something, but I, I couldn't figure out what it was. And, you know, this was the best idea that I've ever had in my life, quite frankly, for a business and also seemingly the lowest hanging fruit. This didn't actually seem that hard to create. And I, I just couldn't get why nobody had taken this on before. Um, so it became quite clear to me what happened and why this opportunity existed. I called literally, I had a spreadsheet, I called 37 different hedge funds um, slash investment managers that were engaged in some kind of activism. And I was excited and, and you know really, really, really stoked and figured they would all be competing for me to implement this idea at their fund. And I had this vision that I would develop the business as a fund, make a ton of money, you know, uh, make a ton of money for a lot of people, including myself and, and be extremely successful, successful with doing this. And you know, these quote unquote so-called rational people, however, became quite cynical. And when I say cynical, I don't mean skeptical. You know, I, I think skepticism is healthy. I'm, I'm an extremely skeptical person myself. I 
skepticism also requires a level of openness that you're going to be skeptical, but you're going to be curious and question and challenge things just like any idea should be challenged in the marketplace of free ideas. But this was not skeptical and open. This was cynical and closed off. And I was a little, honestly, mind blown. You know, these are the same people that come up with an idea investment wise and then look to kill it. Um, these are people that could literally look at raw, easy to understand data. This is not complicated stuff. And they weren't even willing to look. And I was just mind blown. You know, some of them told me this was not in their wheelhouse. Kind of get that. They were going to stick to what they already know. Okay, fine. I, you know, I, I can respect that. But an unwillingness, to, an unwillingness to learn something new that wasn't, you know, it wasn't entirely complicated. It's not like trying to learn how to invest in biotech companies where it's kind of a crapshoot unless you really know what you're doing. And even then, it's difficult. I mean, this, again, is not hard stuff. This, to me, was low-hanging fruit. Um, so whatever happened, you know, to expanding the circle of competence in a low-risk manner that would not take up a lot of time, you know, I thought it was interesting. And... What's also interesting is there was also managers that had, you know, told me, um, they told me it sounded like bullshit and that the results sounded too good to be true. And, you know, again, I got that. I really understand that. I've never heard of ontological coaching and transformational coaching. And you see and you hear about these results. It's, it literally sounds like a bunch of horse crap. Um but I asked them, I said, you know, do you, do you want to see the independent case studies that are out there? You know, there's a lot, a lot of research. I mean, this work is now taught at, you know, over 40. I know it's over 40 universities now in the country. And um, there's been lots of studies over many decades on this kind of work. And not one single person was interested in reading a study, which to me literally said everything I needed to know about their commitment to understanding something new. Little mind-blowing, though, to me. So I was actually now kind of motivated and kind of intrigued. I, I was like, okay, here's clearly a wide opportunity exists that no one's even interested. Um, there's a there's a guy who I, I can't I won't say his name, but he is the COO um, of a business unit at a pretty large multi-billion dollar company that you know they've compounded um, they've compounded shareholder returns of close to 20% a year for the last 20, 20 years or so. And uh, he was, you know, they do some of this stuff in, internally. And uh, he was saying that he he looks at this as like the last bastion of alpha, real alpha, because nobody is doing it. And it's such low-hanging result, low-hanging fruit to get amazing results. So I was incredibly intrigued by this and got more pumped to do this. And I realized that ontological coaching is so outside the realm of these managers because you can't measure it directly as a function of cause and effect. So I started to see that all these business management tools and techniques um, are based off cause and effect. That you know these managers, while extremely smart at reading numbers or learning about you know different so-called management techniques, were completely immature and amateurish around their thinking when it came to stuff like you know conversations around leadership and ontology and anything transformational in nature. And they were inappropriately trying to apply their pre-existing models for management techniques onto a leadership conversation as that was their box of awareness slash logic system. And anything outside of that, it was like their thinking brain just shut down and their survival lizard brain just went into automatic. It was actually outstanding to watch a very, you know, very intellectually smart people just start to spew nonsense trying to make something they had no understanding of into other models 
that were not relevant to this conversation. So long story short, they were either unable to or unwilling to get it, which regardless of decades worth of data and case studies, it didn't matter to these people. And I, I, I just fuck it, you know, fuck these guys. I'll just work with consultants who already have a great track record of transforming businesses and share with them how doing the work they are already doing in the context of a fund structure would be significantly more lucrative than charging a rate on their time. So the first person I went to was the CEO of this large consulting arm that I, you know, alluded to before that had, you know, a several decade long track record of doing ontological and transformational work with businesses, you know, many that earn billions of dollars in market cap. He, you know, the CEO was extremely friendly on the phone with me, but he flat out said that his company was going to stick to what they do best and not get involved in investing or starting a fund, which he saw akin to gambling and uh, playing the market. So, you know, I was like, fuck, like, you know, was this why this, ha this idea hadn't been done before? So not only do, you, you know, people with an investment background not get it, people with an ontological coaching background also don't get it. So I, 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 I thought, okay, this is, this is ridiculous. I, I reached out to another woman I knew, uh, and you know, for the last 20 years or so, she had been producing amazing results with very large businesses. She charges $5,000 an hour for her services. That's how um, effective she is. Um, so I spent about a month, it might have been more than a month, but it was at least a month, outlining an entire business plan and I did a call with her presenting her with the idea. And I, and I you know, explained how if she did what she did in a fund structure, she would make significantly more money than her already lucrative $5,000 an hour and would be able to generate even more business as the stock price performance would be worth more in marketing than anything she was currently able to do right now. And I, I wanted her to be the woman that, say, when a guy like Bill Ackman or Carl Icahn needed extra support, they could give her a call. Now, her response was she told me she wanted to, quote, stick to what she was good at and not get involved in the stock market or hedge fund. She saw it akin to gambling. And then I'm like, holy fucking shit. Like, holy fucking shit. Really? Yeah, you know, this was now becoming crystal clear to me um, why this had never been done before. And the ontological coaching world didn't know shit about investing. You know, now I've talked to several coaches at this point, you know, fast forward like another year or two. And, you know, so these, these, these coaches don't know crap about investing and literally their brains would shut down. You know, they would look at it as gambling or playing the market. It, it, there's something that, you know, I, I, if you're listening to this as a value investor, I mean, you know, people that just can't get value investing. It's like their brain shut down. They're, they stop being logical. Um, they can understand buying, a piece of real estate, but when it comes to buying a stock, it's like, even though it should be the same exact principles, they can't get it all of a sudden. It's very, very peculiar, peculiar and, and odd to me. Um, so, you know, these kinds of people into um, transformational coaching, they tend to be more interested in just the way their personalities are. They tend to be more into things like getting involved in startups and you know really sexy industries and and today would be things like getting into crypto and three D printing and maybe cannabis as well, um, you know all worthy pursuits, but not to combine value investing, shareholder activism, and ontological coaching together. So, 
on the flip side, right? If the, the coaches didn't get investing on the flip side, many of the great investors are great because they're resigned and cynical by nature. You know, where is management lying to me? How are the books being cooked? You know, even you listening to this um, podcast right now or watching it on YouTube, you might be, you know, thinking, you know, your automatic little inner voice might be saying something like, well, what is this? When is this guy going to try to sell me something or bullshit me something? This, you know, you know, there's going to be some sort of cynicism around what I'm saying potentially. And the cynicism is great, uh, you know, for investing and looking at raw data. However, it's, it's horrific for, you know, things like relationships and partnering with others and um, leadership conversations, creativity, innovating, you know, all of that, you know, they see little or no possibility. Um, great for investing in a timber company, a huge discount to their land, not, not so great for transforming a company that doesn't involve some cookie cutter management tool that can, you know, neatly fit inside a spreadsheet. Um, now at this point I felt completely defeated. It had been several years. I've talked to God knows probably close to a hundred people and the same thing, the investment side doesn't understand the ontological coaching side, the ontological coaching side doesn't understand the investing side. And the problem that I had was I needed a lot of capital to get this off the ground, yet no fun with the capital to do this would even listen to me or even attempt to get it. And I also needed an ontological coaching skill set to do this. And, you know, I can't just go online and spend a few weeks and get a certificate. You know, you can get some bullshit life coaching certificate, but that's not going to produce these results. So, you know, nobody with a track record in this realm of ontological coaching understood value investing, right? And wanted nothing to do with it, despite the fact that they were more effective activists already than any famous hedge fund activist. Yet they didn't even realize how valuable their skill set was. It's kind of like um, if you're a doctor and you love working in your little private practice, what you don't realize is, you know, now if you love the private practice and it's not about the money for you, that's no, that's one thing. But some of these physicians could be making a lot more money, say being a consultant to a hedge fund or being a research analyst at a fund, you know? So, so it's, it's interesting how some people, and if you're a lawyer, you might be able to make way more money doing bankruptcy um, investing and litigation and investing and all that than actually being a lawyer. Um, so if you're in, if you have a background in ontological coaching and a successful business track record, you are already doing activism. It just might be with private companies or public companies, but your performance is not tied to the intrinsic value. You're just getting paid your hourly rate. Um, so fascinating to me, but again, these coaches didn't understand it. Even the really, really good ones that I was talking to, um, you know, it was daunting, but you know, the thing is, I don't, I didn't have the capital, but I also, you know, daunting because to get a background in ontological coaching takes many, many years of intense training. And, you know, again, it's not some, you know, bullshit thing. You can just get online and get some certificate. So I'm like, fuck, like this, this is fucked. Like, I don't know what the fuck to do. So I had this idea. I had this, like this last desperate attempt. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to do a fucking Hail Mary here. And, um, uh, I posted a message on Facebook and um, I don't remember exactly what it said, but I'm paraphrasing and it said something like, you know, quote, I'm working on a huge project where there's a lot of money involved for the success of this. I need someone who has a background in ontological slash transformational coaching has worked with many businesses over at least a decade and has a successful track record of doing it. And 
That's what I wrote. I had no idea if anyone would respond. But I figured, you know, my insight was I'm connected with so many people on Facebook who are part of this industry that somebody at least that I'm friends with already is doing this or knows, you know, more likely knows someone who's already doing this that I could connect with. All I needed was just one person to get this. So I, I figured if I found, you know, one successful consulting firm or coach to get this, then I could either get their former clients to invest in a fund we start or introduce their former clients to some of these cynical hedge fund managers and get them to see this wasn't some, you know, bullshit, motivational, garbage, horseshit fucking thing I was trying to sell them. And it's kind of funny because I wouldn't even make money unless there was actually success the way the project would be structured. But again, that's their pre preconceived belief systems overriding any kind of logical and, and rational thinking. So within literally under 24 hours, uh, messages started coming into my Facebook inbox. And eventually, you know, fast forward to, you know, a year, another maybe two years or so. So again, I'm skipping a lot of things. Um, I could obviously get into every little detail, but this would be an eight-hour podcast. Um, so for all intents and purposes of only sharing what's relevant, um, this eventually led me to meeting a few people leading another few people which eventually led me to a guy named john king who who um, created a technology called tribal leadership and also co-wrote a book um, about his work with a professor at usc dave logan who started a company called culture sync and then for full disclosure i don't work with dave logan i have no association with him and i don't have anything to do with culture sync now, when I met John, I, I instantly loved him. I think our first conversation, we talked for like three hours on the phone. Um, he reminded me a lot of Charlie Munger. Um, he has this intellectual thirst, his independent way of thinking, his nonstop learning, reading, studying. I mean, I would call him and he'd be studying something. And, you know, the guy's in his 70s. Um, like Munger, you know, the man's a genius. You know, he would, he would tell you he's not, um, but he is. And he's also a polymath who has the capacity to take principles from one field and synthesize them with another field and come up with completely new insights for looking at the world. And, you know, when I shared with John how much he reminded me of Charlie uh, Munger, you know, he told me he was a huge fan of Charlie and, and also a lover of mental models. And, you know, this was my kind of guy, right? So over the next five years, he spent countless hours uh, training me. Uh, to be able to deliver uh, his tribal leadership work. And I ended up loving it too, but I only learned how to use this because I was interested in applying this to shareholder activism. And I was like, well, you know, if someone isn't going to work with me, fuck it, I'll get the skill set myself, even if it takes me five, six, seven, eight years. So finally, here I found a form of ontological coaching. I could build the skill set to deliver. I could find people around me who would also deliver this work. Uh, which now I have a pretty deep bench of people that I can uh, you know, get onto boards, go into in a little bit. Um, all I needed now was a fund manager to supply some capital. So I asked John, and I asked him if he would let me speak to some of his former clients to start getting testimonials together that I could share as a resource for fund managers to speak to. And, you know, being John, he said he'd be happy to do that as long as he got consent from the clients first. All of his former clients, he asked, were happy to give him consent. And I ended up speaking to, you know, to people such as the founder and CEO of First Service Solutions, Ann Hambly, who's actually been on the podcast, 
um, Glenn Esnard, who's the, uh, you know, he literally developed the private client group at CB Richard Ellis and was also the uh, former head of uh, Collier, Colliers International for all of North America. I also ended up meeting um, through John, the guy who created the culture and foundational work at Lululemon um, when it was just like four people. And he now coaches uh, VPs at Google, LinkedIn, and PayPal. I also have interviewed him before on the show as well. Um, long story short, though, I mean, each person I spoke to was fascinating and knew I wanted to you know, work with them on this project in some capacity. And they all got what I was attempting to do. And I think a big part of that is they've experienced this work and they had a business background. So kind of makes sense. So my big break came a few years ago. It was maybe 2017, 2018. It was when I was in Omaha, Nebraska at the um, Berkshire Hathaway meeting. And I don't remember the exact date. I, I've been to about 14 and 15 of these in a row. So I, I mean, every year since 06, obviously not last, you know, this past year with Corona, but every year since 06, I've gone to Omaha. Um, so they all kind of, for anyone who who's listening, who's been that you, you kind of know, they all kind of um, sort of melt, mold together over time. And you don't remember exactly which year is which um, there's an annual party that I go to every year. And it's hosted by um, uh, Whitney Tilson and Chuck Gilman. And I had been going to this event every year since I was 18, gotten to know both of them uh, quite well. And, you know, Chuck has an outstanding record uh, as a shareholder activism activist. He has a very interesting model. He, he runs a family office and he only invests in micro cap situations where he can do activism. And, you know, the, the benefit of that is it's easier to change a micro cap company. If you can get in and replace the board, there's also not a lot of competition. Right. So just like just like myself, Chuck doesn't like doing things with the competition. And he focuses solely on that. Um, I don't know how many he's he runs a family office. He might be the only family office that just does that. I, I if if he's not the only, it's maybe under five. Um so I, I shared with Chuck that I had a team of people that I partnered with who had a background in turning around companies focusing on organizational uh culture. And there was this, you know, I share with him that there was this 10 year uh, longitudinal study, um, which showed an average increase of three to 500% in profits within 24 months of organizations doing this work. And Chuck was intrigued, you know, I, I, what I really respected and admired about him and do respect and admire about him is the intellectual humility. Um, he had no idea how this stuff worked, had no background in ontological coaching, completely outside of a circle of confidence, yet totally willing to listen for as many hours as it took to at least understand the process, how it worked, and get a good handle on what we wanted to do. He immediately saw the opportunity where others didn't. I introduced him to John uh, on the phone, and he was immediately impressed by some of the former examples of organizations that you know um, he had worked with, um, such as you know the private client group, of CB Richard Ellis, which seemed to defy industry tailwinds during an extremely difficult time for the uh, you know commercial real estate industry, um, and then you look at examples, say you know Zappos. Uh, Tony Shea is a l- big lover of tribal leadership. That's not private information. He, he talks about it publicly um, in his book Delivering Happiness and gives copies to his employees. So you know, fast forward to today, and you know I have a 
pretty deep bench of trained tribal leaders um, with long track records of executive experience, turning around companies that are ready to get on board, um, you know, when duty calls, so to speak. So I'm going to go just share with you about the process now that I've shared the background. So the, the you know, this is what our process looks like going forward. Um, the first step is simply identifying microcap targets. Um, so for, you know, full disclosure, um, I have partnered with Chuck on this project now. Um, so the, the process I'm going to talk about is specifically with Chuck. Um, it doesn't mean that there's other people I can't work with. Chuck literally has no problem with me working with other people. And Chuck's just the only one that, um, has really, um, taken the time to, to get this. And I'm really only interested in people, uh, working with people who, who put the time into partnering with me. So if for all intents and purposes, my project with Chuck, right, is only on focusing with microcap targets. This work could work with larger companies too, but it's a lot easier and takes a shorter amount of time when you're working with a small microcap company. So at least for the first few deals that I plan on doing, it's going to most likely end up being with Chuck and most likely being with you know very tiny companies. So my first step is just simply identifying companies that you know, we could bring tribal leadership into the organization. And it's actually, this is extremely difficult. It's actually the hardest part. Uh, the criteria that uh, we use is, is very strict. So the market cap of the company must be under $400 million, ideally below $200 million. And on, on top of that, management must own under 10% of the stock. That is, that is a non-negotiable um, if they own, you know, forty-five percent of the stock, you're just not going to win a proxy battle. So the management must be underperforming for a long period of time, doing, you know, due to either incompetence or they might just be really nice and and and, you know, but they're incompetent. Um, of course, they could also be really smart and just be corrupt as well, which I, you know, we've seen as as well. Um, we do things a little unconventionally, so. Instead of taking a position and then attempting to wage a proxy battle, we first start talking to existing shareholders that already own a lot of stock. And if we win the election, we, th we then buy a lot of stock in the open market. So it does cap some of our upside, right? We're not going to make money on, you know, say if the stock pops because, you know, me or some other people on our team get elected to the board, but it also limits our downside if the election doesn't turn out. So, this is what Chuck has just been doing for several decades uh, very successfully. And it's a very low risk and patient approach to being successful and getting people onto a board where there's activism opportunity. Now, Chuck spends most of his time networking with people who invest in small and micro cap stocks with the idea that at some point, a small percentage of these people will reach out to him with a company that's been underperforming and management won't work with them or take any of their ideas. And this is sort of a last resort. So we're sort of the people you talk to if nothing else has worked out, right? Obviously, you know, in a situation, your your best your your ideal situation. So here's your ideal situation that almost will never happen. The ideal situation is you buy stock in a company, and the management's having some difficulties, and you go, "Hey guys, there's this stuff called tribal leadership out there," or then there's a few other or you know a few other kinds of methodologies that lead to similar results. And um, we'd like you to uh, get trained in this and we'd you know, like to bring some people in and uh, they go, oh, this sounds great. And they'll look at the results. People have, you know, 
several hundred percent increases in profits within you know a year or two sounds wonderful and they're totally rational people and they're into organizational development and culture and transformational coaching and they they've seen all the data and they understand it works and they just take the coaching and and plow right through and you totally transform the organization and the stock goes up a thousand percent and there was no proxy battle and the management stays on they look good they get paid more in bonuses the shareholders are happy wonderful now if you remember my conversations with hedge fund managers how how productive that was well if you're talking to management that's been entrenched for years and they're not really operating well don't think that usually is going to go well but if the situation that happens that I just explained happens. That is your ideal, most wonderful, perfect situation. And you would make a fuck ton of money. Um, but in the case that they don't listen to you, you would call either, you know, Chuck or I and say, Hey, we, there's this company management owns under 10% of the stock. It's a $100 million market cap company. Can you take a look and see if this is something you guys could work with? That would be the, the, the last resort way that you reach out to us. And, you know, it's been fascinating because now partnering with Chuck, I, I, I take calls now on a weekly basis with shareholders from all around the world. And it's been fascinating and fun, um, you know, just to meet so many intelligent, interesting people, uh, both here in the United States and also internationally. I take a lot of international calls as well. So the, the next step is screening candidates. And I, I literally just examine business models to see if I would deem it a candidate for tribal leadership. You know, there are some businesses where there really isn't a shot at being able to do anything. Um, however, um, you know, what looks like a strategic issue or mismanagement issue almost every single time. I, I mean, unless there's just a really shitty product with no business model and it's terrible, which I have seen that before. Um, generally, it's a cultural issue. And when you move organizations from what's called stage two or stage three to stage four, and um, if you just Google tribal leadership or um, there was a TED talk on it, or I, I'll, I'll post a link on the show notes that goes deeper into that cultural map of the five stages of culture, um, just for people who are interested in learning more. But um, when people move from that stage two, stage three to stage four culture, um, the managerial strategies and behaviors um, naturally alter as a function of the new culture and the profits increase uh, by a factor of three to five times, uh, typically within 24 months. And you start to see results um, in as little as six months. It's usually, you know, one to two quarters um, where you see, where you see results. So it could be less than six months with a smaller company. Um, now, if the company seems like a fit, the next step is to call major shareholders and see if they're interested in seeing change and interested in new board members who will be aligned with the shareholders. And, you know, if any of our team gets on the board, uh, generally the salaries start extremely low and there's, you know, they're incentivized with, um, you know, out of the money uh, stock options. So Chuck has a long track record of being friendly towards shareholders. Um, the ones here, his team um, gets on the board and this is no different. Remember, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. Just, kind of combining two wheels to create you know an ultra wheel you, you guess you could say so the next step is we pay all the legal expenses of the proxy battle and we will do it knowing we already have the support of large shareholders so if we know they will you know vote for our slate or we have a pretty good idea that you know we'll probably win the election um you know we'll spend the money to make it happen you know we're not gonna run a, a proxy contest unless we're pretty damn sure um we're gonna win so 
once the new board members get elected who have already, you know, been trained or have experienced tribal leadership for themselves, you know, then we go ahead and buy a lot of stock. And then the next stop step is actually transforming the culture of the organization. So one of the wonderful things about this work is it does not require a reorganization of the company of any kind. Uh, the current structure and configuration of a company work extremely well um, with tribal leadership because the kinds of benefits are you know, in management and leadership capacity and the ability to work together to resolve problems and produce business results. And you know, of course, measuring results is important. And the great thing about this project is the fact that we'll only be working with public companies, which make our successes public. And, and also if we fuck up you know, royally, that show that will also be public and um, lead to the drop in the stock price. Um, and, and we'd be we'd, that would be well deserved. So the you know first one to two situations I'm going to assert probably going to be the hardest. Um, however, uh, as this you know as this is proven in public markets versus say you know ontological coaching being proven outside of a fund structure for forty years and you know I, I know it really shouldn't matter but it does to most people and so I'm just kind of rolling with that. You know my goal is to get to the point where people start calling us to help them and this process just becomes easier for us. You know there's some horseshit conversation out there that you know these are quote unquote soft skills which is far from the truth. You know, the soft stuff is the hard stuff, like really. And measuring is easy. Um, you measure before you start a project. You measure after you finish a project. When you go to stage three to stage four, results generally go um, from three to five times in measurable results, including the bottom line. So there's a variety of different metrics that we utilize as we go through the process and different metrics are appropriate for different circumstances and the cultural stages. Um, I'm going to post a, uh, I'm just going to post the Ted talk of um, a rundown of the different cultural stages um, from the tribal leadership talk that um, uh, Dave Logan did. So the other thing that um, is crucial to our process is there's a velocity and results. So it doesn't take long to implement a new culture. And actually um, the initial training uh, we do, you could almost say it's the onboarding process. Uh, it takes about two days. It's very, very intense. They're very long days. Um, I'm not going to lie. I mean, you're, you're, it's not magic. You're doing real work and some pretty fucking deep inquiry. Um, but many people uh, report it as the most valuable and life-altering experience they've ever had. Um, and that, that's not hyperbolic. You know, after the two-day program, uh, there's usually half-day follow-ups about every six weeks at the beginning until it becomes self-sustainable. So you kind of have to spin those plates at the beginning. And it really uh, just speeds up the pace that this gets embedded into every facet of the organization. So generally, you know, realistically, it takes about 18 to 24 months um, to elevate a culture from stage two to stage three to stage four. But you know, the results do show up uh, within one to two quarters. You know, one of the concerns um, that I've heard from shareholders that, you know, I've been now speaking to for the last few months is, you know, how do you get some, you know, 75-year-old CEO um, or, well, I guess it wouldn't be the CEO per se, but it could be, um, but even a manager, right? A manager of some division who's been there for 20 years, 
you know, they're 65, very successful. Why the hell would they listen to some consultant, you know, or some coach or some new kind of methodology? What they've doing has been working for them pretty well. So this concern of, you know, how do you get quote unquote employee buy-in? Um, and, you know, that word, quite frankly, is some horseshit garbage that has been taken from your, you know, traditional consultant slash flavor of the month, USM strategy or point of view they try to force onto every employee. And, you know, employees will just roll their eyes um, and they'll pretend to go along with, um, you know, with the program because they need to play nice with the boss. They don't want to get fired. Um, but, you know, this is the reason why most consultants are a total, you know, total waste of money. Uh, motivational speakers are, are even worse. I, you know, Harvard, Harvard uh, Business School has shown that motivational speaking is one of the largest money drains of, at, at, a, at a company. Uh, it literally has like the absolute worst return on capital, like to like negative dollars. Um, with tribal leadership, there's a negative percentage. It's not, it's not negative dollars because you're spending money on a, on a motivational speaker, but there's zero results that come from that. So with tribal leadership, there's no buy-in. Uh, actually, what you could say with ontological coaching in general, there, there's no buy-in. Um, if there's buy-in, what they're doing is not ontological coaching. They're just doing some kind of technique uh, with people, which is fine. It's just, it's not going to be as effective, um, especially if you need buy-in. So the first step um, an implementation buy-in except not really but see it's funny on the surface it's going to look like the employees bought in so they're going to say oh how did you get all the buy-in but it's not buy-in um, you know we first do a, diagno a diagnostic um, and it just tells us where we are culturally and the prevailing issues or predicaments that are just not getting resolved so this is what you call culture mapping um, we then look to discover what they're already um, is alignment to create new overall strategies using um, a tool called the strategy model. Um, then we drill down and, and do the work until each and every single person has their own map and their own self-designed strategy. And you know, success depends on the degree to which people follow the strategies that they created themselves. And normally, the people in the C-suite, you know, this is what typically happens, right? Is the people in the C-suite then hand a strategy to the employees that were created by the consultants and then demand buy-in. They might do it politely, but it's a demand. Um, the way we do it, we involve everybody in the design um, of their own strategies uh, and the wisdom of the overall strategy at once. So the other thing is there's no use of force. You know, something we also get asked a lot is, you know, if we aren't forcing this upon anyone, why would someone right who's already successful want to partake in something like this? So I alluded to before, it's a, it's a valid question and a key issue. So those at stage three, quote, haven't made and are in control of those at stage two. So their incentive is predictably not great to change their, quote, I'm great, you're not point of view. However, if the overarching interest of the organization is to elevate the culture and the outcomes and results of the greater group, then the stage three, stage uh, stage two, stage three culture must move to stage four. So in order to do this, the issue of ego and self-promotion on the part of stage three must be addressed. And the organization will only move to stage four if the issues of stage two, stage three uh, mentality have been successfully addressed. You know, the issue with stage three is it will always show up in the overall uh, financial success of the company. 
So I see this as low hanging fruit alpha. You know, another thing I get asked, uh, I'd say pretty much nearly every hedge fund manager who's been willing to talk to me, you know, they'll say something like, if, you know, if there's such a focus on shareholder value, then uh, with, with this kind of work, then why isn't everyone doing this, right? This isn't some, you know, happy, you know, um, happy go lucky, woo woo, let's sing kumbaya and everyone's smiley. I mean, the, the, the truth is, it does impact the bottom line, even though as a, the, the employees tend to be happier and there's less turnover and all that. I, you are making more money at the end of the day, which is the shareholder activism part. So, you know, when people ask me why isn't everyone doing this, you know, my, my, uh, and it's of course fund managers that are asking me this, you know, the, the, the asshole, uh, you know, bullshit Eric Schlein response that I'd want to say in my head would, you know, be something like, you know, because people like you were, you know, closed off to this because you're fucking lazy and immature in your thinking. However, you can't really say that to anyone, especially people you want to work with. So, um, you know, I was saying I, I, I had this conversation uh, recently with a CEO, a COO of a, a business unit of a, a major multi-billion-dollar publicly company, and he literally said to me, "He goes, this is the last bastion of alpha because it's low-hanging fruit that nobody is doing because there's no competition." That is not a paraphrase; that is word for word verbatim what he said to me, and. You know, the shareholder value focus is a focus on the bottom line, right? So it's not a focus on the cultural vitality of the organization. Tribal leadership is focused on the well-being and effectiveness of the organization. And ultimately, shareholder value uh, is a function of the outcome of an effective and stable culture. So the more effective the culture of the people at work, the more effective their results. And our philosophy, and quite frankly, our supporting data have shown that if we effectively attend to the well-being of the people doing the work, the quality of their work will then show up in measurably higher uh, productivity. So what's missing in this prevailing model for shareholder activism? So, you know, guys like Icon, Ackman, et cetera. You know, what we do is drastically different um, and also significantly more uh, effective than what is taught in modern-day business school. So if you look at firms like McKinsey, right, and basically every shareholder activist that's using management models, cost cutting, et cetera, is, I look at it as the modern portfolio theory of the leadership world. Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't produce results, right? So let's, you know, for us value investors who understand how bullshit modern portfolio theory is, you know, you can still make money using modern portfolio theory over a 50-year time horizon, right? Like if you do the market average, or even do 1% below the market average, you start with $10,000, that will be significantly more than $10,000 over 50 years. Does that mean that modern portfolio theory is an effective uh, way of looking at the world or looking at it valuing securities? Doesn't mean that at all. No, it, you, you actually made that money not because of modern portfolio theory, but um, you know, in spite of it. And you could say that if you were a value investor, you would have made a lot more money. Um, right? If you were doing, you know, just the net net strategy over 50 years would have made a lot more money. Um, so so I, I look at the prevailing um, sort of management models as the modern portfolio theory of leadership where people say, oh, look, we, we cut costs. We made things more efficient. Look how, look how much better the company is. Therefore, we, we did a good job. Right? That's kind of what people say. But it's, it's hard to see the unseen. Um, so right, you can still improve shareholder value by cutting costs and improving efficiencies. What I'm saying is that there's nothing wrong with that. You're, you're just there's something missing, right? So you're you're leaving a fuck ton of extra value on the table that 
isn't even that difficult to attain. As I said, it's low-hanging fruit. And business schools are strong on management. Um, they're very, very weak on training people to be leaders. Management is based on control, domination, survival, and ultimately fear. Most management is a carrot and stick kind of game. The game is about managing for a result against the diminishing resource. And that diminishing resource is time. And if you're a manager of an organization, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Leadership requires transforming the relationships that people have while working together, mutual respect, collaboration, stability. And the culture of an organization is a function of the quality of leadership provided and attended to. If the management disrespects the employee, the employee will then slow down and waste the most critical resource that management has, which is what? Time. I'm saying what, well, like if you are going to answer me. Uh, <laughs> but if you answered me in your car, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, if, if the management provides effective leadership, the employee will respond by using the time more effectively. Employees who have the experience of partnership and respect of their employers naturally produce net superior results. Tribal leadership builds sustainable environments where leadership and partnership arise naturally and authentically. Our data supports the point of view that a focus on culture and leadership produces superior results in a more efficient and sustainable manner than management techniques um, that focus on operational efficiencies alone. Right, So there's nothing wrong with focusing on operational efficiencies. There's nothing wrong with management conversations. You know, I, I, I'm not saying that at all. Um, I'm saying there's an entire component that's just simply missing, and it's leaving a lot of low-hanging fruit on the table. So put simply, management and leadership are in two um, distinct domains and different domains. Management is about efficiency, and is the vital and necessary underlying craft of any great company or organization. Leadership is about empowerment, teams, and the relationship between people working on a team, between team to teams, and ultimately an organization operating as a single unit, producing profits, and creating shareholder value. Leadership is in its own realm and requires a different mindset and worldview. The leader must be a great manager. That is a given but he or she also must know when to step away from the psychological limitations of the manager fixated on efficiency and then adopt the mindset of a leader who is exploring the creative world of breakthrough into, quote, out-of-the-box thinking and, you know, exploring the unknown um, or experienced effectiveness of the organization. So, you know, there's a very famous uh, quote that's attributed to Peter Drucker, right? Where he says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's become just an aphorism now that gets thrown around by consultants and in business. Um, but there's one thing to talk about. It's one thing to actually live that, breathe that, and implement it. So business school strategies mostly derive, you know, from Harvard Business School, Michael Porter, who's a brilliant man. Um, you know, according to Peter Drucker, um, at best... Um, the Porter model is successful about 30% of the time on average. Um, this is because the strategy is, quote, imposed on the employee and the employee has little or no input. Therefore, 
the person who knows the job and is actually doing it is actually being told what to do and how to do it. That's really, really stupid um, if you think about that. So predictably, the employee often resists and gets resentful. Um, if you look at organizations with lots of burnout, um, those relationships are structured in that way. You know, they might talk about things like empowerment and build a, a rest yoga room and whatever. Um, but it's interesting how burnout tends to almost disappear completely when the structure changes like this. Um, the other thing is the strategy model that we teach in tribal leadership. So there is literally an, an, a way we do strategy in tribal leadership, um, which can only really be taught once the cultural component um, is in with people. So it's the last thing that we do. It's always the first thing people want to do, but there's all the stuff underneath around relationships and structures for relationships and all of that world before you can get to this. Otherwise, it'll just be another strategy model. So the strategy model that we teach in the context of tribal leadership, um, unlike the Porter model, which is about 30% successful on average, um, the model we do is about 80%, 70 to 80% uh, successful. This is largely because we teach the employee to design their own strategy quarter by quarter. So they're, they're, you could say they're bought in by definition from the beginning of the process because we're, we're working with them on what they already are committed to as opposed to trying to you know, impose something on them. And so, yes, they are bought in by definition from the beginning of this process. And actually, they appreciate that their input is honored and respected and actually empowered. So they end up being more effective of what they're already interested in and already want to do. Um, furthermore, the strategy model that we teach is much simpler. Uh, it's also self-managing and self-correcting, meaning you don't need this wildly outlandish accountability system. You don't need to have a coach calling you for a coaching call every, you know, every week or something like that. It pretty much is self-sustaining and self-correcting. And you end up kind of just coaching yourself in the process. So in essence, um, it's a more elegant design. Um, furthermore, uh, the strategy model allows leadership and managers to take advantage of and capitalize, uh, capitalize on the inherent understanding of customer data and other critical aspects of having an organization perform at a high level and make its clients happy and market happy. So you know that's tribal leadership in a nutshell of what we're you know, looking to implement with public companies. And if you are an investor in small and micro cap companies, um, if you know others that are, or if you're currently a larger shareholder of a company where the management has been underperforming, they don't meet that 10% threshold. Um, and you think that it actually is a legitimate, you know, product or, or service and there's just something really broken, even if it, you know, you probably won't say, oh, it's a, it's a cultural issue. It'll look like a strategic issue. But if you say, hey, look, there's a strategic issue. There's some real managerial, you know, inefficiencies, management's corrupt, they're incompetent, whatever like that. Um, you know, my first recommendation would be try to see if they're willing to work with you. You, you might be surprised. Some are. And, you know, you can always bring us in anyway. Um, or it could just be, hey, we just got to cut some costs and everyone's better off. Um, there are some managers of public companies that really just are that incompetent and would be grateful for your input if you have a business background. But if you aren't able to have those kinds of conversations effectively with the management and you're frustrated um, and you'd like some change, um, you know, please reach out to me. 
um, you can reach out to me uh, through the website. Um, I'm going to actually post, I'm going to do a blog post on this too, um, which I'll post on the proxyactivism.com website. Um, you can also just reach out to me personally. Um, the podcast email is intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. Um, you can also just contact me through Twitter if you want to DM me. It's just Eric Schlein, you know, at Twitter, uh, at Eric Schlein on Twitter. Um, so there's a million ways to get a hold of me. I'm not that hard to get a hold of. And uh, would love to hear from you. And even if there isn't a situation right now, if you want to just check in with me once a year, once every 10 years, um, or just to understand the process a little bit, there's a ton of white papers and data and articles um, on this work, and as well as um, case studies, both in tribal leadership and just on proxy battles that Chuck has done in general. So I just you know invite you to take a look at the site, proxyactivism.com, if you're want to know more information and there's even a contact button on the site where you can just reach out to me if you have more questions so i look forward to talking to some of you and i appreciate you listening this is you know project i've spent literally thousands of hours on over close to a decade um so it's nice to share with you i hope you all have a great rest of your week and i'll see you in the next episode take care